What up, what up, what up? Welcome to the Petty Herbalist Podcast. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, Grand, Grand Rising, my sister. <laughs> Grand Rising. hello y'all welcome um it's your girl karina what's up what's up and it's your bay asia and uh we're so excited to be with you <laughs> another another episode of our our sweet little pod yes thanks y'all for sticking with us through the trials and temptations and all the <laughs> uh, Yes, this is a fun episode. We're continuing our Me as Medicine episodes or our series. Um, and yeah, Asia, what are we getting into today? Mm, well, after after a, a quick review of our medicine bags, uh, yes, we we're going to talk about um, bioregionalism and sustainability in meat. Um, and so that's very exciting. And um, yeah, we're looking forward. Yes. I love that. So Asia, tell me, what's in your medicine bag today? Mm. <laughs> um, well, so last weekend, I went to a Black women's retreat hosted by Soda Soul Sisters. Uh, Hala, and I got to uh, experience um, Dr. Gail Parker. Um, she's the author of um, Restorative Yoga for Ethnic and Race-Based Stress and Trauma. Mm. And I love Dr. Parker. Got to be on a panel with her when she was in Colorado or when she was with, yeah, in Colorado the last time. Uh, mm. But this time... Oh, I felt like I was in church. Like, yes, she got the word. She had the word. She said uh, that we needed to stop asking for what can't be offered. And it put my relationships in context. And she asked, like, how much time we spend like avoiding the feeling. And and it and it really helped me to see that my process when I'm feeling the feels uh, is often to move into logos and to create story and work mm. my imagination. And so I've just been sitting uh, with, the, with the sadness of the, the loss of love, mm. the loss of connection. And I just, as you know, doctor, Dr. Haraway says, uh, I just sit, I just sit with the trouble of it. And mm. when I sit with the sadness that I actually feel, it's, it's, it's so, so humbling um, mm. that like, no, like, I feel hurt. Like, I feel sad. Yeah. Like, you know, there's, there's grief. And so I, whenever the feelings or the thoughts come up, like I just, mm, I try to like massage the edges of the feeling. Mm. Like I try to like hold the feeling in, in my body. Like it's the most 
sacred thing that I have access to because it it is like the sadness that I feel when mm-hmm. I'm not like avoiding it or creating story or trying to move on or all this stuff. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm yeah. So Doctor wow. Doctor Parker is in my my medicine bag and so grateful to have um, so many powerful Black women to uh, to help me frame my experiences in the world. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's really good and really powerful. Yo, <laughs> I think it's just kind of interesting how like my medicine bag kind of parallels with yours. Mm. Um, I would like to thank um uh pharmaceutical medicine um <laughs> aka the next plan um birth control implant for its work and helping me connect with my emotions mm-hmm. um this past week or i got my um implant taken out a couple weeks ago now but this mm-hmm. past week um i too was thinking about exactly what you were just saying Asia just like the grief and processing of loss of love and friendship um and um I was crying and without like being on anything (laughs) I literally just let myself cry and I was like wow like that medicine really helped me and um if there's anything great that that thing did, it was help me connect with my emotions. Um, so mm-hmm. I just want to praise pharmacom- pharmaceutical medicine that way, this particular medicine, um, it really helped me. And now I feel like I can do it on my own. Mm. Um, yeah, it was crazy. I was listening to a Kanye West Donda album for the first time yesterday and it was so good and I was crying (laughs) like listening to it and um, I was like wow I'm so proud of myself for just letting myself feel I was like I don't know why I'm crying right now but like for some reason my body needs to elicit this emotion and I'm just going to feel it Mm. and so yeah I was really happy and proud of myself so um, yeah it's interesting how ours kind of parallel today Yes, you know, <laughs> crying is like taking your soul to the laundry mat. <laughs> you feel do you feel washed? I do. <laughs> yeah, yo, shout out to the grandmothers and the ancestors that made birth control available. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, part of my grief has also been mourning. Um what's happening in Texas around abortion and the Supreme Court's failure to act powerfully on our behalf. So I, yeah, yeah. So I'm, I feel grateful to you for praising like birth control as like, you know, it's really important that we, we get to have access to this. And so, yeah, it was interesting. So I got it, um, a little over a year ago and the um, physician who inserted the implant she particularly told me like listen I'm glad you're getting this now because who knows what's going to happen in the courts these coming years <laughs> so it's interesting that this is happening right now because these doctors know 
And I follow like some OBGYNs on TikTok and they try to like provide information as to like, if you live in Texas, like here's how you can access medicine right now. Here's how you can get um, abortion care when you need it kind of thing. So yeah, yeah, I also want to praise doctors right now, in particular OBGYNs who are really fighting for patients out here who need care. Yeah. Mm. There's like uh, all these like shivers and and waves of of anger that I'm experiencing in my body right now Mm. that I just want to um, acknowledge that this topic has a lot of charge for me, um, especially as an herbalist who um, has been trained in using plant medicines for, uh, you know, certain things. So Mm -hmm. Plants don't want to do it. <laughs> yeah. It's dangerous when we use the plants. Um, right. And so having access to safe, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like safe, safe healthcare for uh, controlling birth is actually a big deal. Um, yeah. So <clears throat> yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Um, yes. And speaking of access... <laughs> Yes. Let's talk about access to food. <laughs> How do we access our other forms of wellness? Yes. Um, yeah. So I heard you had a, a sweet conversation with your with your brother. Yes. My brother, aka Carlos Des Rosas, aka Los Nose. <laughs> On Instagram, follow him. But I don't know if you could catch him because he's a runner. He'd be out here in these streets. He's a runner. He's a track star. But um, my brother is part of a run club in L.A. called Blacklist L.A. Because um, he likes to be out here in these streets, literally. Um, But yeah, I had a conversation with my brother. My brother is a plant-based fellow. Um, And um, in talking to him about food and sustainability um my brother's the type of person who's like hey like whatever you're doing out here just like stay in your lane like you do what you feel like you need to do for the world for the environment for other people and yeah you stay in your lane like I I won't bother you you don't bother me kind of thing and so yeah when I asked him about like what does food sustainability look like for you and what you're large or what's your biggest concern about food and sustainability he mentioned to me land use and um, for him um, having a plant-based diet is more sustainable because he feels as though um, according to his research that um, plant crops take up less space than um, farming of animals And so he also mentioned that um, creating or that factory farming has decimated um, rainforests all over the world. Um, And um, he mentioned that um, he feels like if we focus more on um, planting plants as crops, then we would require less resource and less oversight for these farms and we could produce more food. 
So um, that was really inspiring for me. I'm inspired by my brother. Um, and I love that he cares for the planet. And that's why I wanted to sit down with him and ask him a little bit about his lane of trying to care for the world. <laughs> yes. Your brother's in the fast lane. I love he it. really is. Isn't it funny how I said all that <laughs> But yeah, so yeah, that's that's his view of sustainability. And that's it's really inspiring to me. And um I did a little bit of research on that and to see like what other people are saying about that. And I found um, some research done by, um, what is this organization called? Um, the Humane Party. <laughs> and because they have a good amount of research that I'm looking at right now. Um, and they verified that, that it um, requires less land to produce um, plant crops than to produce animal or food from animals. And it actually brings more money into the US economy if we do so, that kind of thing. But also they acknowledge their bias that they are the humane party and that, you know, they care for, um, what is it called? Their biggest concern is um, the welfare of animals in quotations. Um, so um, my question, Asia, is based on, your not only research but you've been out here in these streets you've lived on farms around the world um how accurate do you think that is yeah so uh i always want to acknowledge that uh you know animal farms are trash mm -hmm. <laughs> basura yeah. like we are definitely not here for factory farmed meat yeah. and what that means, right, is that uh, there's a part of my existence that acknowledges that without factory farm meat, that not everybody in the world can access the high quality pasture raised meat that I have mm. um, access to. Um, I remember when I was a, a young uh, food studies major <laughs> uh, and I read this book called The Omnivore's Dilemma by Michael Pollan. That's right. And okay. in The Omnivore's Dilemma, he described the polyface farm. Uh, in the polyface farm, really inspired me because it was this simple, simple, simple idea of uh, treating animals the way that animals want to be treated. Mm -hmm. And it was the first time that I actually saw a solution to, um, to industrial like animal agriculture. I didn't know that another way was possible. I, I thought that mm. the only, you know, that I had to give up meat because the only meat that was available was meat that was coming from these, these factories, which Los does know, like these factories are not sustainable. And, you know, most of the corn, <laughs> plant-based mm. crops, right? <laughs> That's taking up most of the fields in America. That corn's not actually for people. Like that corn yeah. is to feed these factory raised animals. Um, and so learning about polyface farm 
um, got me really into sustainable agriculture, sustainable animal husbandry. Uh, and I got to live in Australia where I became a permaculture teacher and I learned uh, how to do rotational grazing and what it takes. And, and what's true is that, you know, the animals, uh, especially the large ruminants um, that are grazed rotationally actually have a net positive impact on CO2 emissions. Mm. Um, and the movement of large ruminants um, have tons of benefits for uh, the environment, for the animals themselves, and then of, of course, eventually for our own well-being as the people who consume them and so you know cows and things like that that are rotationally grazed um, actually have a positive impact on the environment their uh, omega-3 to omega-6 fatty acid ratios are nearly one to one which is mm. like ideal um, for the human diet uh, and then uh, when you, you know, you start stacking these functions, you have like chickens following the, <laughs> mm -hmm. following the cows and the chickens like spread the manure and help the grass to grow. And then the chickens yeah. eat the grubs out of the manure. Right. And so you're able to create beautiful and sustainable systems of animal husbandry that uh, improve the landscapes. I've seen deserts converted um, to, to grasslands, to green spaces through, uh, you know, paradoxically running animals on it. And so one of the, you know, folks who have been doing this research, there's a lot of controversy, but the Allen Savory Institute, uh, is one of them. Um, and Allen, you know, Savory with the example of watching, uh, the impact of the animals in South Africa, he mm -hmm. sort of des designed a system that was similar here um, in the U.S. And so, you know, yes, factory farm meat is not sustainable. Mm -hmm. And without factory farmed meat, the only people who would be able to access nutritious animal-based protein would be us and the rest of the wealthy elite. Um, and it's really important to acknowledge that, uh, you know, our food system is bifurcated, right? Yeah. There's the food for everybody else. And then there's the food that you and I eat as bougie aunties. Mm -hmm. um, and I almost feel like those two systems depend on each other uh, mm. because or traditionally, like all food was organic. And there wasn't a such thing as a factory farm, like all cows were on pasture. Mm -hmm. um, and so we like, we're paying these like premium prices, but these are actually the real price of what food is. Uh, and it's important for us to also acknowledge that uh, food prices are artificially suppressed in this country in order to justify lower wages. Mm. And those artificial suppressions comes from the subsidization of corn mm. and other crops that go into feeding these animals and the corn that becomes a high fructose corn syrup and processed mm -hmm. food. Um, and so when we're talking about like food access and meat access and, you know, plant access, it's important to know that like 
you know, uh, that we have to actually think about what happens when we do get rid of the factory farms and how, like what nutrition for the populace looks like under those conditions. And also we have to think about what's going to happen to these animals once they're not used for production. Like, how do we care for them? Mm. Because we're going to have a lot, right, left over. Mm. So how do we take care of these animals? If we stop factory farming today, Mm. how would we care for them? I always think about that. Mm. And at this point in time, we don't have a sustainable way to take care of these animals. Honestly, a lot of them will be killed. Yeah. And, you know, I want to kind of center your earlier conversation about indigenous diets, because Mm -hmm. uh, if we ended factory farming today, our indigenous ancestors would have known what to do with all of that meat. Right. They would have known what to do with those hides. They would have known how to dry that meat, how to ferment those parts, what parts of the animals contain the most nutrition to eat it. And so, you know, in a future where we only have sustainable meat production, Mm -hmm. uh, a population size has to dramatically decrease. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like the rise of factory farms complement the rise of mega cities where most people aren't growing the food. And so industrial food is actually you can't um, disentangle industrial food with industrialization. Right. Industrial food comes as a a remedy and as a solution to um, population growth and excess in that way. Right. And Um, people would literally starve if we got rid of the globalized food system right now, because if you're spending all your time at work, you can't grow your own food, right? Like, how are you going to, if we can't go to the market, how are we going to eat? Yeah. Um, so yeah, we have to create some intermediaries. We do. Uh, and I want to maybe talk about some of those meaningful intermediaries. Um, because, you know, the other part about um, eating only plants in, in a I'm, I'm biased because I live here in Colorado. So mm-hmm. I have the Cheyenne Ute and Arapaho indigenous elders to help guide my understanding of what we need to eat to live here on these lands, mm-hmm. right? So because I'm not disconnected from myself, disconnected from the indigenous people of the land and disconnected from my own ancestors, I don't have a question about how to eat to live because the ancestors already tell us it's not hard to find out, right? It's, it's obvious how to eat to live uh, when you're grounded in ancestral tradition. But for folks who aren't mm-hmm. grounded. Um, yeah. And how- also that too. But I'm also going to say people who live in like a, a state like California that we could probably eat most of the food that we produce but a lot of it gets shipped out right and so we end up buying things from Mexico and we end up buying things from China and whatnot because we're exporting everything Mm. 
let's 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 talk a little bit more about like because I'm curious Karina about how how you choose to eat to live in a way that is sustainable and I also like want us to consider the larger context of what it means to have a globalized food system yeah that's hard um because I have been a person who's traveled a lot for most of my adulthood and so I haven't really had grounding like you do of where you've been in Colorado and you've been able to kind of figure out um, how to eat bioregionally really sustainably I kind of have had to participate in the market system Mm -hmm. um But for me, what always grounds me is going to the farmer's market and talking to the people who produce uh, meats and um, eggs. Ooh, you should make them your best friends (laughs) because, listen, once you make friends with them, like they'll get you the deals. They'll save the extra bacon for you that you like. Um, (laughs) You're better people to like literally going to the farmer's market and making these relationships is what really has allowed me to eat sustainably. Um, And I like to eat in season where I'm at. Um, And also living in the Dominican Republic kind of opened my eyes to what's really going on globally. Um, In particular, I used to see my favorite yogurt, <laughs> which, so I lived in a city called Jarabacoa and um, it was in the mountains. And so there are a lot of cattle up there. They're so cute. They have like all these white cows that just be chilling. Um, and cows just like cross the street and stuff. It's really cute. But yeah, so there's this yogurt called uh, Jogur Jarabacoa and it's just like the cheapest yogurt but it's the most high quality yogurt and like literally it's maybe like you get the big thing and it's less than two usd and um that stuff is like the highest quality yogurt that you could buy at whole foods was jogur harbacoa like organic (laughs) pasture raised like all the things but what's interesting is that so many people would purchase um, Yoplait and Dannon and all that because they perceive that that's better. And I was like, y'all are eating that shit. We all got the good, good here. So that really opened my eyes to the fact that um, the global food economy, they get to create the standard for what everyone should be eating. Mm-hmm. But yet the real good stuff is right there. Like, at your local grocery store, at your colmado, at your whatever um, the local store is called, what's produced there. That's the actual good shit. Mm. So um, yeah, that's a good example of um, what really informed my eating um, and how I try to eat sustainably where I'm located. But like I mentioned before, it's really hard to purchase California produced things because most of the things are um, produced elsewhere so yeah um, I don't have a CSA I would love to but um, I'm not grounded y'all so I am a traveler (laughs) 
<laughs> but this is the way that I want to um, or uh, making relationships with farmers markets and farmers directly is is my strategy word and yeah I made being ungrounded wrong no I don't think that's it's wrong it's just some people have access to it other people don't it just depends on what they do for work values it's a you know I so I'm a bioregional herbalist and what that means is that like the herbal medicines that I use I don't use herbal medicines that don't grow here or that can't Mm -hmm. grow here so 90 percent of the herbs that I use are literally from my block Mm -hmm. (laughs) so hyper hyper local uh, because I wanted to forward this idea of bioregional adaptation. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I truly believe that eating the foods from the land helps us to adapt to the stressors and conditions that that land holds. And this mm-hmm. is true. The food that grows here in Colorado uh, is going to have higher amounts of vitamin A and antioxidants because the plants that grow here are stressed by the sun and by the altitude and they mm-hmm. create plant defenses that you know are actually nutrition for us um right. our rose hips have more vitamin c and the higher up in altitude we go the more vitamin c our rose hips have and so for me eating a lot of vegetables that come from california doesn't make sense to get the amount of nutrition that i need for to live here in colorado Um, And then the other thing and looking in the the anthropology and in the, you know, the records of what the indigenous people of these lands were eating, like red meat was central uh, and understanding like biochemically the importance of heme iron at high altitude helped me to understand that like my chronic anemia uh, was not only like genetic and biological, but was also an expression of what the climate does here to our bodies. And so meat literally became medicine for me. And as I started consuming meat from cows that are rotationally grazed on grass here, like my health improved and my blood became strong and my brain became clear. Mm. Um, and And I had to really humble myself to the fact that I am an animal and that I need other animals and having that need, cause I need them. Like there is yeah. neediness, there's dependence there. Like this causes like me to actually have to be in relationship. Like, right. you know, my homies at the farmer's market, you know, Marcus <laughs> McCauley from Macaulay farm, shout out. That's right. Be like, you know, I got them chicken feet for you. Like, see, that's what I'm girl, saying. You know, I got that liver. Like, girl, you know, because he got it. Like, he got that yeah. I needed the bones and he got that I needed the hearts and I needed sort of these organ meats. Um, and yeah, so when I go back into my own cultural traditions, like my grandmother prepared uh, liver for us at least uh, once or every other week. And so I was like, why, you know, why was my health so good when I was younger and really Mm -hmm. kind of fell apart when I was older? And it's because I stopped preparing my ancestral recipes, which were Mm -hmm. included lots of organ meats. Uh, And then, of course, when I started studying traditional and indigenous nutrition, their cuisines, even though they ate lots of plants, 
Like mm-hmm. these folks ate plants, right? Okay. They really did, but they always had their organ meats as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, being grounded in my ancestral tradition as an African-American and then the indigenous traditions of the land that I'm on, it made it very simple to, to understand like what to eat and that every single thing that I needed is actually right here. Um, and I want to name that, like, when I lived in Bolivia, it's when I learned about uh, sort of neoliberalism. Ooh, because Bolivians are about it. Like, ooh, <laughs> yes, I fucking love Bolivians. Um, but what I learned from them was the way that the global food supply was really shaped by colonial organizations through the food and agriculture organization, but also the world trade organization. Mm -hmm. And what that looked like for our ancestors in the global South or all over the world was um, instead of reparations, like what they were owed after colonizations, the colonizers had to figure out how to continue to extract resources from these economies. Mm -hmm. And so they would create sort of structural adjustment programs, especially in the 80s, that forced these countries to stop feeding themselves and to start producing foods for the global market. Mm -hmm. And so it banned practices like import substitution, which would keep foreign competitors out of their economies so that they would be able to produce the foods for them for themselves and their well-being. Mm-hmm. And so when you're saying, Karina, that like you live in California, literally the nation's like all of our food comes, you know what I mean? And that yeah. you can't get like local, that y'all are getting food from Mexico. It's because of some of these neoliberal policies um, that really center sort of former colonies and their ability to, to penetrate these developing economies and like flood them with mm-hmm. their shitty processed foods. Yep. Um, and so everything you said about folks choosing Danon, right, over the mm-hmm. best yogurt that's already yeah. there, um, all of this is actually part of the design And the way in which sort of our plant-based lifestyles are completely dependent on these neoliberal constructs is really concerning for me. Mm. I can't be plant-based here in Colorado without participating in the global food economy in a way that's destructive to other, other states. Like to me, for me to be on my high horse and have all of these like jackfruit imported from and and all this like food from elsewhere, it's part of me continuing the colonization of, you know, the people who enslaved my ancestors. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, for me, sustainability is not like this, this simplified measure of CO2, which a lot of climate scientists love them, but that's whack, right? That's mm-hmm. an oversimplification of thinking about like sustainability and, and good and stopping climate change. For me, mm-hmm. the conversation about sustainability includes, are people able to sustain their cultures? Are workers able to sustain their livelihoods? Uh, and, and, and thinking more holistically, about sustainability actually will have us begin to center the things that are near us. Right. right? The most sustainable thing is the food that you grow yourself. Right. We ain't got that kind of privilege. Right. right. 
So then the next best thing is the food grown by somebody else that you know, right? right? Like this, like keeping things close to home helps us to avoid uh, these colonial constructs, these these neoliberal policies that um, really advantage uh, countries like ours to the disadvantage to all the brown people, <laughs> all the mm-hmm. BIPOC people in the world. And I, I, it, it's almost hard to bear my privilege when I go into the grocery store yeah. and I'm getting bananas from Ecuador because I know what it costs to have those monoculture banana groves and what those do to the indigenous people who live in those places. Like, right. So, you know, being able to even opt out of local food and opt out of animals, it only exists within the context of the economic subordination of everybody else. Yeah. And, it, and, it, and it hurts me because like I have seen the world. So I see the cost mm. of plant-based food. Like I see, I see what happens when people start stop doing their family farms and have to work for these plantations Mm -hmm. you know to like feed our plant-based appetites like yo like (laughs) we got winter out here in Colorado (laughs) like eating fresh greens that haven't been frozen or preserved like that's a privilege and that privilege it costs something you know so I these conversations are very emotional for me because I, I've, I've seen I, in Bolivia because of the rise of quinoa. I've, I was in Bolivia before quinoa was popping and mm-hmm. it was called poor people food. And it was, you know, mm-hmm. and I got to see like the indigenous people who like, you know, survived on quinoa only a year later that they have massive health issues in the country because all the quinoa is, is being grown for export. So mm. the people in the country can't even have their grain. And that, that like, oh, <laughs> that yeah. hurt my spirit because people get to have their food, you know? And, yeah. and so I don't, I don't eat quinoa. I don't. I won't because it it hurts you like this is visceral for you yeah (laughs) I'm really hurt by it um because people deserve to access their food and their accessing their food is more important than my idealism right and a similar example is um Actually, Asia, you put me on. Uh, there's a documentary series on Netflix called Rotten. And it exposes a lot of um, unsustainability issues around the world for simple crops that you wouldn't even thought about. Um, like Asia mentioned, quinoa. They also talk about avocados and how um, the production of avocados in Mexico has created like cartels. Um, where people are unsafe in their own city because they produce so much money off of selling avocado or exporting avocados to the United States that like literally like it's at drug level. <laughs> um, and another example that brings us closer to home is um, garlic. Mm. Um, garlic production. Like, it, I mean, we produce a lot of garlic in the United States, but um, as soon as the other global countries see, it's not just the United States, but it's 
the big players in the world like China, when they realized how much money that you can make um, by uh, selling and producing garlic, they got in on the gang. And uh, they put a lot of small farmers out of business because it's so much cheaper to get garlic from China and the United States we prefer peeled garlic, peeled and chopped up garlic, which they could produce very quickly and very efficiently with prison labor. That, uh, yeah, it's just, uh, it's unsustainable for our farmers to do. So, yeah, so these little decisions that we make um, or these, these, um, these decisions that we make to eat particular foods, they have huge global impact if they're not um, produced where we are. So yeah, being on a high horse about <laughs> the type of food that you eat, uh, is irrelevant. It makes no sense. And, uh, it's harmful because, um, actually one of my favorite, um, uh, what does she call herself? She calls herself an eco environments, um, the black forager. That girl, if y'all don't follow her on the Insta, the TikTok, y'all should. Um, my good sis, she um, she is plant-based, but um, she mentioned that it's better to eat local um, even if you are plant-based because here's the thing, being on a high horse is stupid because even if you say oh I don't eat eggs you know I I don't harm animals like what you if you eat just egg it's coming in a plastic bottle so like you're damaging the planet still so um it's really hard to be perfect and that's why our episode last week was really important about like um shutting down the idea of purity and purity culture because there's nothing on this earth that's pure that's perfect like we're all trying to figure it out so mm. yeah I want y'all to know that everyone's trying like my brother said stay in your lane like you choose your lane and also open your mind open your heart to what other people have to say um so that was kind of that was kind of my bougie word of advice kind of all wrapped up <laughs> do you have anything else to add my love um not really we've we've said a lot today um we've gave y'all a lot to think about um so I don't think so boo um I really appreciate you getting emotional though um that speaks to how much you care about people and about the world and that really inspires me so yeah bae do you happen to have a bougie word of advice for the folk today mm. um <laughs> <laughs> uh, this hawthorne is <laughs> making my heart Hit too him. open <laughs> um yeah as i'm like blowing my nose like ooh. <laughs> um I think my my word of advice is that like uh, there are no right answers Mm -hmm. um there's no longer we can no longer opt for like a perfect diet 
Um, but if we center our food choices in taking care of people, and I want to name that, like people are animals. Yes. Okay. So you take care of an omnivore Mm -hmm. (laughs) by feeding the omnivore what it needs. right? Right. But if we center irrespective of our like ideals and sustainability and if we center if we center people in relationships and constructing our food way right like I center the relationship to my ancestors and to the indigenous people who lived where I live but Karina also centers the relationships to the farmers that she meets at the farmers markets Mm-hmm. I also center the relationships to, you know, the black and brown people globally who are under under oppression. And so mm-hmm. in centering like folks, right? Like it has me choose organic food, not because it's nicer, but because I don't want farm workers being expo- exposed to pesticides. Mm-hmm. Like that's why I choose like organic food. But I I just my word of advice is like, see what your world is like when you center relationship to people and see what becomes available, Mm. right? I'll eat a plant-based meal because it was cooked with love (laughs) and I'll Mm. eat it with my heart and it's perfect. I ain't got nothing to say, right? But that's because like, I'm constantly centering uh, people and relationships. So that's my word of advice is, is see what, see what, you know, see what's available when we center people um, and mm-hmm. see what comes about. I love that, Bay. Yay. This is so good. Thank y'all again for listening. Don't forget to support us. Follow Asia at Bones, Bugs, and Botany. Also support your girl because as I keep reiterating to y'all, <laughs> she's writing that book. So patreon.com slash bones, bugs, and botany. And then, of course, continue following us at Petty Herbalist and support this podcast at patreon.com slash Petty Herbalist. I just want to shout out that we got two new supporters. And it was really fast. And um, one person I don't even know. That's why I had to shout it out. So that new person, what's up? Um, (laughs) so yeah thanks for y'all's support and uh, we'll continue our series next week yeah see you then bye